Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? Thanks, man. Cool. I'm glad that y'all are doing well. I'm so encouraged to see y'all here this morning. Uh, if you're new, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, there will be an R people listening, sorry, online. And man, just want to let y'all know that we miss you and we love you. Uh, man, I can't wait to, for the day for all of us to gather and just worship together, um, longing for that time. Uh, but until then, we'll continue moving forward as we have been. Uh, man, let me encourage you to uh, in, uh, join me in Psalm chapter 32, um, verses 1 through 5. Sorry, loading this iPad kind of threw me off. Anyway, yeah, we're going to be in Psalm 32 today. We're looking at verses 1 through 5. Now, while you do that, um, in addition to what Ms. Ann just said, I want to give you a couple of updates uh, just so that we're clear. And in addition to that, these will be sent out via email, particularly if you're a member. Um, the first one is not necessarily something that is new for us here at Storehouse McCallum. Um, one of the things that Ann just mentioned were our discipleship groups. Those are uh, groups that continue to meet throughout uh, the year. Uh, for the rest of July, however, in an effort to uh, really display an abundance of caution, um, when it comes to our larger uh, groups, such as our missional communities, for the month of July, we're actually going to be pulling back from those. We call them MCs. We're going to be pulling back from MCs uh, primarily because we tend to spend a lot of time together in one space in an intimate setting. And so in an effort to be uh, cautious, given the season, we're going to go ahead and pull back from MCs for the month of July. That being said, it's not necessarily something so different for the summer. In the summer, we actually go really hard when it comes to our discipleship groups and pull back on our missional communities so that those leaders can catch a break, get some rest, uh, and refocus as they get ready for the fall. So that's going to be the first one. The second one, and also, I should say, in addition to that, the reason we're doing that is so that we can continue doing Sunday gathering. The Sunday gathering, we're spread out a lot easier than in someone's dining room. Anyway, uh, the second update is going to be after service. So we love the fact that everybody uh, who does get to join us here on Sundays, we get to hang out afterward a little bit. Uh, but the incubator does get sanitized, which is a good thing. It does get sanitized uh, once every two weeks. Additionally, we sanitize it, but we're also trying to tear some of this stuff down promptly. And so, as a result, at the end of service, if you would do us the favor slash honor, um, that if you're a guest or if you're visiting, once we're done, we're going to go ahead and dismiss you toward this exit. So if you want to catch up, love love each other and hug, do it outside. <laughs> and so that's just so that we are cautious during this time and we get to tear down. Lord willing, again, looking for the day to where this isn't necessarily an update that we have to make. But for now, thank you so much for your grace and patience. With all that being said, I'd love to just dive into our time. So I hope that y'all are ready. Several weeks ago, especially if you're new, several weeks ago, we began a series on emotions titled uh, Untangling the Heart. You see the graphic behind me. And so we started this series on emotions and what God's word has to say about us engaging our emotions in a biblical and in a healthy manner. Additionally, as we dove into these emotions, we have wanted to examine what exactly they communicate. It is uh, our belief that emotions are in fact important because they communicate something about who or what we worship. 
I believe that God has created us with emotions so that our emotions, our feelings, would actually draw us closer to himself. However, as a result of our sin and our corruption, that actually keeps us at a bay, keeps us at distance and, and, uh, from the Lord. And so, over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at several of emotions like anger and fear, lament that we can wrap up under grief. Today, we're going to be looking at guilt. Got really quiet really fast. We're going to be looking at guilt, okay? So, what do you have to say about guilt? What do you know about guilt? You see, guilt is heavy because, sounds kind of funny, it weighs you down, obviously. Guilt, (laughs) Eric got it. Guilt is heavy because it weighs you down over something that you have done or over something you didn't do. See, guilt is heavy over you and me because unless we actually address guilt, we will always carry it. And it doesn't go away and it doesn't get any lighter. And when it comes to guilt, the truth is, you and I are always looking for absolution to our guilt. We're always looking for our guilt to be removed, for someone or something to remove our guilt. And part of the reason guilt is such a heavy burden is because like anger, it tells us that something is wrong or that something has gone wrong. Guilt is heavy because you and I are moral creatures. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about the law of human nature and what separates us from uh, the animals is that we can choose to disobey the law of human nature, that you and I know right from wrong and we have the option to disobey when it comes to right and wrong. And so when it comes to guilt, it's an issue of morality, that I've done something wrong or that something has gone wrong. Additionally, guilt is heavy for you and me because it's easy to make other people feel guilty. If you want something done by someone, just make them feel guilty. And it works most of the time. So in our time this morning, here's what I want you to know. Okay? I want you to know that apart from receiving the grace of God, we will never find absolution from guilt. Apart from receiving the grace of God, we will never find absolution from guilt. So let me read Psalm 32. I'll jump in a prayer, and then we'll examine three parts of our time. So beginning in verse 1, here's what the psalmist writes. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Let's pray. God, as we step into our time uh, uh, where we get to study and examine your word, 
Lord, I pray that we approach you this morning in humility. Lord, I pray that we approach you this morning ready to receive your grace. Uh, Desperate even to receive your grace. Longing to receive your grace. God, each one of us in here has dealt with and or is dealing with guilt. And so God, we ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, cut down into our heart, reveal to us not only our sin, but be at work in us so that we would be courageous in coming forward before you in an effort to find grace. God, I pray that those who do know Jesus this morning would come to know him better. God, I pray that those who do not know Jesus would come to know him today. And so Holy Spirit, I know we know that you are present among us. We simply ask that you would continue to be at work within us. God, we pray that this time would exalt Jesus, that this time would bring you much glory, and that in this time we would be sanctified to be more like Jesus. And so we ask these things in his name. Amen. So we're going to look at three sections. We've been looking at three sections throughout our time in this series. And so we're going to look at what guilt communicates. We're going to look at how guilt motivates, specifically ungodly ways that guilt motivates. And then finally, we're going to look at um, guilt and the freedom of uh, a guilt in the gospel. So let's begin with the communication of guilt. As I mentioned earlier, guilt communicates that something has gone wrong. More specifically, guilt communicates that I have done something wrong and that there are consequences. The thing about guilt is, before we get into the ungodly ways of responding to it, the thing about guilt is that it can actually be a good thing because of what it communicates. In their book, Untangling Emotions, authors Groves and Smith write this about guilt. They say, guilt reflected in a healthy conscience provides guardrails to help us know when we're acting against God or neighbor. Guilt in itself doesn't tell us that we are fundamentally unable to love. It tells us when we have failed to do so. You see, guilt alerts us to wrongdoing, and if we allow it to, guilt can actually lead us to repentance. But we don't always turn toward God in that manner, and we don't always turn toward one another in an effort to repent of our sin to one another. I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7. He writes, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. What Paul is telling the Corinthians is, hey, I'm actually glad that you felt guilty. I'm actually glad that you were grieved. Not because I just want you to sit there and feel that way, but because it communicated something about your sin and it led you to repentance. And so guilt communicates 
wrongdoing. And if we allow it to, or if we respond well to it, guilt can actually lead us to a place of repentance where you and I would find grace. However, Instead of walking toward God, we turn away and we tend to experience something different. In other words, you and I, or maybe, maybe this is just me, I'm not always necessarily thinking, how is my guilt gonna lead me to repentance? How can I worship the Lord in this moment? Oftentimes, when I experience guilt, maybe when you experience guilt, it doesn't only communicate a wrongdoing, it actually leads me to despair, it leads me to discouragement, it leads me to death. It leads me to despair in the sense of self-loathing. It leads me to despair in the sense of just utter discouragement in the sense that I am worthless and none of this is worth it. It leads me to discouragement in the sense that I just continue to fail. I try to do the right thing. I try to go about it differently and I just continue to fail and often uh, I'm feeling discouraged. It leads me to death because I make poor decisions that drive me further and further away from the Lord Jesus. So one of the things, as a result of that, one of the things, or two of the things that you and I need to know is that you and I need to distinguish when we experience guilt, whether we're experiencing true guilt or false guilt. These are on your notes. We need to distinguish whether we're experiencing true guilt and false guilt. Now, before I expand and elaborate on both of these, I want you to know that when it comes to true guilt and false guilt, They feel the same. However, they are rooted in completely different things, okay? You see, true guilt is objective. There's no argument when it comes to true guilt. It is objective. In other words, we have actually done something wrong. We have sinned against God. We have sinned against one another. We have actually committed a moral failing. An example of this would be earlier this week, I was meeting with a single father. And he was telling me about some of the guilt that he carries as he sacrificed his children so that he can pursue entertainment. Or sacrificed spending time with his children so that he could pursue education, entertainment, and a bunch of other things that ultimately led to him missing out on the lives of his children. And as much as uh, I was able to, by God's grace, to encourage him, that is true guilt. It is something that he should have done, something that he didn't do, and to an extent he was very guilty about it. And so I wanted to talk to him about it, and I wanted to have, see, I wanted to have him see his guilt so that we would walk to repentance, so that things would change as he begins to invest and love and serve his children now. But in that moment, as we were talking about it, he experienced true guilt. It was something objective. False guilt, on the other hand, is guilt that is perceived. It is perceived guilt from a moral failing that is actually rooted outside of God's word. It is rooted outside of God's law. An example of this would be cultural norms cultural norms or or family values, or here's a big one, other people's expectations of you. Particularly expectations of you that are not communicated. And so when you fail, they may 
make you feel guilty, and therefore you do feel guilty, even though you may have actually not committed sin, but it is something that has been perceived. I'll give you an example. At my wedding day, my wife Rebecca and I, this is my wife Rebecca, in case you didn't know, she wanted a small wedding, but I'm Mexican. And so we originally wanted 100 people, right? And uh, we had over 250, right? And at weddings, particularly for the bride and groom, at least for us, you don't remember who or who, don't, who you don't talk to. Man, you're just busy, like, eating, taking pictures, drinking and dancing, celebrating, right? Doing the dollar dance. Just like, let's go to the next thing, right? And so at our wedding, um, I'm saying hi to family and cousins that came from out of town, and I'm meeting Rebecca's family and all this wonderful stuff. And uh, at one point, as I'm walking, I don't remember where I was walking to, but as I was walking, my brother grabs me by, by the arm and he pulls me aside and he says, I've been waiting for you to take a picture with you and you keep walking around. He was really mad, mad. And so in that moment, my brother had an expectation of me that was not communicated to me and he had an expectation of what the wedding was supposed to be for him and so in that brief exchange, he got so mad that I felt guilty. Because in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, I've left my brother. Like he was waiting to take a picture with me as if I haven't seen him since, right? <laughs> he was waiting to take a picture with me. Oh no, I had him wait, right? So not only did I experience what you would call false guilt, in other words, I took that upon myself. I have failed my brother, but it's really an expectation that he put on me that I didn't necessarily know and that he didn't communicate even when I came around his table to do the constant wave. And how I responded was even worse because I was like, let's go. I mean, it was brothers. He's the one I shared a room with. We fought the most. My head's gone through a wall. I threw him off the stairs once. It would have been normal. There's four of us growing up. So that's how we solve things. With that being said, that's an example of false guilt. Someone placed an expectation on me that wasn't communicated, and I took that guilt upon myself. I, in that scenario, failed him. That would be an example of false guilt. Again, guilt is heavy because if you make someone feel guilty, you can make them do anything. Or they might respond poorly like I did. You see, distinguishing between true guilt and false guilt is simply another way of identifying what's going on so that we can properly respond. So that we can properly respond to God in repentance or to others in repentance and forgiveness. See, if we don't respond to guilt biblically, if we don't respond to guilt in a godly way, then we risk responding to guilt in a selfish, self-loathing, hurtful, and even arrogant manner. 
And so as we move into the motivation of guilt, particularly in an ungodly way, you and I must know that we're gonna respond to guilt differently. However, the godly way of responding to guilt is by allowing it to lead us to repentance toward God, toward others. However, whether it's out of despair or arrogance, here are three ways in which we tend to respond to guilt. Now, I told you at the beginning of this series, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a psychologist. There might be more ways than these three. I'm just trying to keep it simple, okay? Here's one of the ways in which you and I tend to respond to guilt. The first one is by ignoring our guilt. We ignore our guilt by reasoning that whatever has happened is in the past. And because it's in the past, it's not necessarily something worth addressing. The problem here, however, is that we're still able to identify that we have guilt And because we're able to identify that by ignoring it, all we begin to do is cultivate bitterness for the future. I've sat in counseling sessions with individuals who experienced and felt guilt and shame, and they responded to guilt and shame by ignoring it, stuffing it down, suppressing it. And here we are 25 years later with a big oak tree of bitterness. Sometimes we respond to guilt by ignoring it. And we believe that the further we get away from our guilt, eventually it will stop bugging you. Inevitably, what ends up happening when it comes to us ignoring our guilt uh, is that it transitions into us dulling our guilt. Here's what I mean by dulling our guilt. We dull our guilt by trying to outweigh the good and the bad. So all of a sudden we have this imaginary scale in front of us and on one side we have good stuff and on one side we have our guilt stuff. And the guilt stuff is really, really heavy. And so one of the things that you and I tend to do is that we tend to do more and more good things. If I can just do, I did one bad thing, if I can do 10 good things, what's gonna happen is that this scale is gonna uh, uh, change, it's gonna counterbalance, guilt's gonna go down, goodness is gonna go up because I'm pulling myself up by my own bootstraps and I'm doing these good things and I'm trying to work my way back into being a good person. And the problem with doling our guilt is that, man, our motivation for doling our guilt is so that this guilt would just shut up. The problem is that it's still on the scale no matter how lower it is. Or, number three, maybe we compare our guilt. We compare our guilt when we to an extent, you almost seem kind of righteous in a sense of like, you're right, I did commit this transgression, I have sinned in this way, so you admit to some, let's say, moral failing, you admit to it, but then what ends up happening is that in order to counterbalance how you feel, you compare yourself or your sinfulness to the sinfulness of another. You're right, I did do that, but at least I'm not Hitler, right? Everybody's always comparing themselves to Hitler. It's like, this is, he is the worst of the worst of the worst. I'm not like him. Like, he's World War II, I robbed ice from the stripes. Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, it's not that bad. We outweigh it by comparing ourselves 
to the sinfulness of another. Well, here's what I want you to look at. This is in verse 3. Actually, verses 3 and 4. And this is what the psalmist writes when it comes to guilt. He says, For when I kept silent, that might mean he was ignoring it. That might mean he he just didn't want to talk about it. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. We talked about the word Selah. We've been talking about the word Selah, which means stop. The, the psalmist is inviting you to stop, and he is inviting you to reflect on what he has just said. And so what he has just said in the context of verses three and four is that he has been trying to ignore and even dull his guilt and conviction and the weight of guilt is still upon him. Can't get rid of it. You see, the problem with ignoring our guilt, trying to dull our guilt, and even comparing our guilt to others is that each one of those ways, you and I are trying to find resolve. We're trying to find the solution to our guilt by doing one of those three things, if not all of them. But the problem is that none of them actually provide us with absolution. None of them actually declare us not guilty. None of them declare us righteous. So how do we respond to guilt? Because no matter what we do, it's still there. It's still on the scale. No matter how much good we do, no matter that it's been 25 years that we have ignored it, at some point it is uprooted and unearthed and now we have to deal with it. And the truth is, the truth is that the only person who can remove and resolve or absolve us of our guilt is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can absolve us of our guilt. He's the only one that can remove our guilt from that scale. See, the gospel teaches us, not just teaches, the gospel proclaims that God takes the guilt that's on the scale, he takes it off, and he places that guilt on Jesus. That's how he absolves and frees you and I from our guilt. And apart from receiving the grace of God in Christ for us, we simply will not be absolved from our guilt. And so it always will lead us to respond one of two ways. Works-based righteousness, which is what we just talked about. Ignoring it, dulling it, comparing it, doing all of these other things that hopefully my good deeds, my good behavior, my behavior modification will speak for itself and the guilt will finally maybe roll off or it just won't be as loud because this is much heavier. That's works-based righteousness. Why is it works-based righteousness? Because we're trying to earn our way into a position that we can't earn our way into. 
In addition to that, any one of those ways, it becomes exhausting at some point. It becomes exhausting because the guilt is still on the scale. It's still there. And so the only way in which we can properly respond to it is through something called grace-based righteousness. Grace-based righteousness is when God takes the guilt that you're trying to counterbalance off of the scale and places it on Jesus. Let's go back to verse one. Here's what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Guilt comes off of the scale for anyone who turns and repents and places their trust in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross to die for sinners and not just pay their penalty, but become sin. That's what the apostle Paul writes about. He says, for the one who, uh, who not only became, who knew no sin, but became sin for our sake, Jesus goes to the cross not only to die for sinners, but to become our sin. And as a result of becoming our sin, taking upon our guilt, he gives us his righteousness. He clothes us in his righteousness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How do you and I receive this grace? Because we constantly feel guilty. I'm going to give you four things. We're kind of coming to a close. I'm going to give you four things. But let me just be clear about these four principal steps, whatever you want to call them. They're not really steps. Like it's not just do one, then do the other, then do the other, and you're good to go. These are cyclical. These are things that we're going to be doing. I'm just separating them so I can talk about them a little bit easier. Here's the first one. Repent. How do we receive and experience this grace where the, the, the weight of guilt is removed from the scale? We repent. That is the first thing that we do. Do you know why guilt has so much power over you? It's because of our unwillingness to repent. That's why guilt has so much power over us. It is because of our unwillingness to repent. So look at verse five. Here's what, here's what the psalmist says. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. He didn't confess 90%. He didn't confess 95%. He didn't even confess 99%. He put 100% of his sin on the table. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And when it comes to confession, it is agreeing with the charges that have been brought before you. It is agreeing with what's on the table. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. The first step principle, however you'd like to call it, the first step into receiving and experiencing the grace of God is through repentance. 
Remember the word Selah. Verse five ends with Selah. So he is inviting you to stop one more time to think and reflect. He is inviting you into reflecting and identifying what's actually happened so that you would confess and repent of your sin. Now let me be clear with this. This does not mean, there's a couple of things. This does not mean that there aren't consequences on the other side. This doesn't mean there aren't consequences. However, good or bad, that doesn't mean that there are not consequences. However, sometimes, even in light of consequences, Christians, we twist it all up because we'll confess our sin and then there's consequences and then we think God is punishing us. God is not punishing us. That was the whole point of the cross. What is there to punish? Your sin was placed on Jesus on the cross on your behalf as he died for sinners. And as a result of his resurrection, he gives us, he extends us, he offers us this free grace that you and I cannot earn. There is no punishment. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You might have good consequences. You might have bad consequences. Okay, that's one thing. But as far as punishment, Jesus has bore that on the cross for you. In repentance, as we come before the Lord, we find grace. We find grace. You see this example? We've been talking about this uh, throughout the whole time. We see this example back in the garden, right? Genesis 3, we sinned. And so what does God do? God comes to man. God calls man out. Adam, where are you? What has happened? And so Adam is scared. Not only is he guilty of what him and Eve have done, they are also experiencing shame. And God is calling them out. And they come out and God addresses them and he addresses their sin. Are there consequences? Yes, there are consequences. But then what? God covers them with grace. If you continue reading after Genesis 3.15, around 17 and 18, it says that God covered them with uh, uh, loincloth, which means he sacrificed an animal on their behalf, and then he is the one that covers them with his grace. So yes, he addresses Adam and Eve, but as they come forward to God, they find grace. In repentance, we find grace undeserving favor from God toward sinners. Upon repenting, we then receive his grace. I've covered that a little bit. Verse two, what does he say? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Man, receiving God's grace takes a little bit, but we're, you become extremely thankful in the midst of it. Because the grace that he clothes you with, the grace that he gives you was one that you did not earn. It is one that you do not deserve. But in his mercy, in his graciousness, in his love for sinners, he gifts us grace. Now, 
I don't know if it's just a Christian thing or a valley thing, will hear about receiving grace. It's like, right, I get it. I'll receive grace. Therefore, what do I need to do to pay it back? You don't pay it back. You do not pay grace back. You walk in grace and you extend the same grace that you have received in Christ through repentance and forgiveness. Christians ought to be the best grace extenders and givers because it is the Christian who has realized the grace that I have received, I did not earn. Receiving grace means walking in that grace and extending that grace because of who you now are in Christ. You're not paying it back. When you serve the local church, you're not paying God back. I hate it when Christians say that. People say, man, I just want to serve because I just want to give God back. What are you giving him back? The grace that you have received was a gift for you, not because of the gifts you have, but because your heart was spiritually dead. And he is giving you new life through his grace and mercy by going to the cross for sinners. So when we serve, it's because we are walking in that grace. It is because we want to extend that grace. When we are out in our neighborhood, at our job, around our families, we are walking in that grace, extending the same grace that we have received because we did not earn it, and we want more people to come to know Jesus because we know that people who don't know Jesus are walking around with guilt. It's still on the scale, and only the Christian understands that that guilt has been removed, not by me but by the Lord Jesus let me tell you about him the third thing so we repent we receive and then we rest this is the apostle Paul in Acts 24 he says so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man sometimes even well, never, let me back up. Repenting can be painful. <laughs> Repenting can be painful. But what the Apostle Paul says in light of rest, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience. In other words, I have been reconciled not just to God and man spiritually, but because I've actually done business with God and man. I continually repent of my sin before God, and I continually go to my brethren in an effort to address sin so that I would have a clear conscience. Just because we understand that Christ removes us of our guilt doesn't mean that that's, that'll be the last time we feel it. What we see here in Acts 24 is that the apostle Paul takes, uh, he is proactive about pursuing repentance. He is proactive about resting in the grace that he has received by also communicating uh, with other brothers and sisters where he repents before them or to them, where he forgives them same thing. I think sometimes as Christians, we look at repent, we look at receive, and we're like, yeah, that's good. I like that. I'm going to just stay there, right? Rest, it's more like an active rest. It doesn't mean you don't do anything. 
It, do, it might mean, however, it might mean that, man, as you have repented and as you've received the grace of God, it might mean you have a conversation with a brother or sister. See, this is where Christians go wrong, right? Oh, I've forgiven them at a, at a distance. Just stay over there. I don't know if that's a, having a clear conscience, right? Because if you still talk like you're mad, it's not a clear conscience, right? So we rest. We repent, we receive, and we rest knowing that we have been reconciled to God and man. Here's the fourth thing. I didn't write it down like a fourth thing, but it would be an encouragement. <clears throat> receiving God's grace also means receiving grace in and through community. I want you to look at verse six in the same psalm. This is what he says. Therefore, as he's confessed his sin, as he's put everything on the table, he has received forgiveness. He's, his sin has been wiped away. Therefore, because of that, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Yes, things look different because our MCs aren't necessarily meeting and our discipleship groups have to find creative ways of how to do it. And at the same time, none of us is without excuse about what it looks like to pursue one another. Because you got Zoom, everybody figured that out the last three months. You got text message because everybody's been on it for the longest time. You got even uh, phone calls because we were doing that before text messaging and Zoom was a thing, right? So all of us here are without excuse to actually pursue one another in an effort particularly to receive prayer from one another especially when that guilt is loud and you know that Christ is Lord, it just doesn't feel that way and you're experiencing guilt, what does it look like for you to reach out and receive prayer from a brother or sister? When was the last time you did that? You see, the thing about guilt is that as we respond to it, particularly in a godly manner, is that we don't do it alone. I want you to listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian during World War II. This is what he writes. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him, I want you to underline this if you have the notes, again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. You've been in those moments, if we're looking at guilt, where you know what truth is and there is tension between the truth and what you are feeling. And sometimes you need a Christian brother or sister to speak truth into you. Not good advice, but good news. Sometimes you need a brother or sister to not just speak good stuff, but grace stuff. I think this this is where we struggle, church. I'll pray for you. Just 
Post it on Facebook. I'll like it. That means I prayed. What would it, what would it look like if we actually... Let's put out a church-wide challenge. What it would look like if we actually got off of social media and instead of posting and liking, we actually called and Zoomed and say, how can I pray for you today and this week? Put that on the table. I'm not going to quiz you or grade you on it, right? But we'll see. What would it look like if we did that? Well, why am I calling them? Oh, I don't know, because you love each other in the Lord You receive grace and repentance. Our grace-based righteousness is encompassed in repentance and receiving that grace and in resting in the Lord. And you also pursue that grace and experience that grace of God through the people of God in community. Fine. Groups are pulling back and all of us here are without excuse. So, Christian. What is it that you're holding on to? How is it that you're responding to that guilt? Because I know you have some. What is it that you're preaching? I know you're preaching something. The reason I know you're preaching something is because nobody is more influential on you than you, and nobody talks to you more than you talk to yourself. What are you preaching? I hope you're encouraged by this. Repentance is more than forgiveness. Repentance is finding grace. Repentance is finding grace. Unmerited, undeserving favor from God for you. Don't leave here without repenting and receiving the grace of God so that you may walk in that same grace. If you don't know Jesus, I just want you to know, Jesus can remove your guilt. And he's ready to pardon all of your sin if you would turn and repent. He will take that guilt and sin upon himself and check it. He exchanges it by clothing you in his righteousness. There is no payback. There's just a new life. As I close, it is the grace of God in Christ, church. It is the grace of God in Christ that gives us freedom from guilt. We're going to respond through prayer. We're going to respond by singing in just a moment. Let me just encourage you to respond by giving. All of these are strands of worship, not logistics. These are strands of worship, so let's pray. God, if, if we are honest, uh, guilt is very loud. Sometimes our own guilt dominates us. Sometimes our guilt cripples us. Sometimes in our guilt, we make poor decisions. Whether that is habitual, ongoing sin, or we isolate ourselves from one another, or we simply run far, far away from you.
But God, you, you are not only a saving God, but a gracious God. You are a merciful God. You are a God of justice. And how did you execute How did you execute justice when it came to our injustice? You did it by sending Jesus to die on a cross for sinners, bearing your wrath. And so God, I pray that we would be a people who do not take grace lightly. I pray that we would be a people that dismisses grace because it's just another church word. The grace you give us and the grace we find was costly. Therefore, when we receive, when we walk in newness, and when we extend that grace, it is not simply to ignore people. It is not simply to ignore conversations or situations. It is so that Christ would be reflected. Further, when it comes to grace for us, Lord, may we just park there for a couple of seconds and Lord would you forgive us of our arrogance would you forgive us for dismissing your grace would you forgive us for cheap grace in our prayer this morning would you would we find grace and be reminded that there is no condemnation for those in Jesus therefore as a result that guilt has come off the scale. May we repent of our sin this morning. May we receive your grace and may we rest in the reconciliation we have between you, Lord, and the reconciliation that we have between one another. And if that does not exist, God, would you empower us through your spirit with your grace to pursue reconciliation? God, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.